Acts 22, beginning in verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him, then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him, that's Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's pray that prayer we pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. This past week, it was on Wednesday night after dinner, the kids are doing their chores, and some child, I forget, it might have been Gwen, Evie, I don't know, they came and asked me, can we go to Rita's? I said, no. But then I said, wait, it's Wednesday, let me think about it, because it's half price on Wednesdays, as it turns out. <laughs> well, the kids take this, and they proceed to go upstairs to George, who's hiding in her sewing room, distracted and not really paying attention, I'm assuming. And they go up and they ask her, And she responded with the classic, go ask your father. (laughs) 
Here's how that got translated by the time they came back downstairs to me. They come down and they say, hey, Dad, when are we leaving for Rita's? <laughs> now, I'm assuming Georgia's okay with this. I said, now, I guess. So neither Georgia nor I gave explicit consent to this idea, and yet there I was eating my gelati at the kitchen table, wondering how I got hoodwinked here. <laughs> and I get to thinking, you've know, you got to be smooth, you know, to play your audience like that. And they were smooth, and, and it helps to have an ace in the hole, because in this Rita's incident, the ace is that secretly Dad wanted to go anyway, right? Um, you don't have to make a prolonged argument or anything like that. I'm pretty easy to manipulate, but I'm surprised I didn't think of it first, in a way. But sometimes you have to play one side against another. And kids have this down to a science. You play mom and dad against each other, and like every sin, I didn't have to teach it to them. They just know, right? It comes naturally. And the kids had a goal, and they worked as a team. I was actually almost proud of them. You know, they rushed to get their chores mostly done, and everyone was in on it. They were very smooth about it. Not one of them threw the others under the bus. It was all seamless. They all kept their cool. It was a perfect conspiracy. They pulled a perfect divide-and-conquer maneuver. And by the, by the time they were in the car waiting for us, because they're already there, like they're halfway to Rita's at this point, and you realize like a decision got made, and no one knows who made it, really. My kids are, are true politicians, very smooth operators. Now, we've all been manipulated at one time or another, because some of us obviously have kids, and some of us are married, and some of us at least have parents, right? Um, and we've all watched the news, so we get manipulated in that way, right? And we all have politicians that govern our land, so we get manipulated in a routine basis in that way, right? We, we all have manipulators in our lives. And, and some of us are pretty gifted manipulators in our own right. Now, it's not always sinful to be conniving in certain ways, right? Now, it's fair to say that the scriptures can be pretty hard on manipulative characters like, like Jacob or, or David in our story earlier, or like Satan, right? I mean, there's some things like, you know, if you're really conniving, it's not good. But on the other hand, at some times, the Bible, uh, you read about stories where they get rewarded for their cleverness. It's a nicer word for it, right? So Naomi sends Ruth to sneak into the threshing floor, right? And she wins the guy, right? Or, or Tamar tricks Judah into <clears throat> keeping his obligations, and she's declared righteous by the end of the story, right? And in today's story, I think Paul is quite clever and even kind of manipulative. And he proves that he's not only a masterful deb debater, he's a very smooth operator. He's like a politician, like a lawyer. He knows exactly which cards to play and when. Now, in Paul's case, the cards he plays are membership cards, he manipulates the situation by producing the right card in the right circumstance. He has credentials. He, he's, he's a member of all the right clubs, and a smooth operator knows how to fit in anywhere they go. You know, James Bond never looks out of place, right? He always belongs wherever he is, right? And I, too, have membership cards, right, you know, in important clubs. We don't have membership cards here at LVPC, but I can freely and proudly walk into Costco, for instance, right? I can walk into the Allentown Public Library. I belong there. I've got a card. I don't actually, but I could, you know. And, you know, and I, my small credit union down in Philly, you know, it has clout there if I walk in, right? And, and these cards are not interchangeable. I can't flash my AAA card at Costco, but none of my memberships interfere with the others. 
Paul, on the other hand, has something of an existential crisis on his hands because the question looming over every scene in this passage is where does Paul fit in? Where does he belong? Whose team is he actually on? Which of his membership cards trumps the others? Which one really counts? Is he a Roman? Is he a Jew? Is he a Pharisee? What is his tribe? And it's a tough question to answer, and being smooth doesn't really provide the answer. And the sad thing is that none of these tribes seem to want him. He's like the kid who gets picked last in baseball. I know that feeling. I was that kid. Paul will use his smoothest moves, but after you kind of use up all of those clever lines and you're still in the clink, well, now what, right? Where do you turn when no one else wants you? So we pick up the story today on the steps of the Antonia Fortress, which is the, where the Roman garrison is. This is the barracks that's referred to. And Paul, we, if you recall, he had tried to win over his countrymen. He, he gave his final public speech to the Jews of Jerusalem. And it started well, but it tanked faster than the Sixers in the playoffs because, you know, he, he shared his testimony, and the crowd was really interested in that, right? But when he mentioned the Gentiles, they went berserk all over again. And at this point, the Roman Tribune probably regretted letting Paul speak at all, is my guess, right? Because if he'd known this was going to happen, he would have gagged him in the first place. But anyway, we, we rejoin this scene at the riot, already in progress, right? And we arrive just in time for the Tribune to come up with an easy solution. It says, up to this word, they had listened to him, and they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the Tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. I don't know how many of you, when you go to the shore, you ever see in the gift shops, they have those t-shirts with the skull and crossbones, and it says the beatings will continue until morale improves. It's like that kind of mentality, right? Examine him by flogging, you know? I kind of like the idea. I mean, it reminds you of, like, the old witch trials, right? You throw her in the river. If she drowns, she was innocent, and that's kind of sad. But, you know, if she floats, she's guilty. We'll burn her at the stake and correct that mistake, you know? Or you take the Monty Python approach. You weigh her against a duck and see which one weighs more, right? And save the trouble of the, the actual river part, you know? But, but this order to flog Paul is kind of hilarious because you have this whole mob outside, right? They're the ones making a scene, it's an absolute mess out there. Luke says they're all throwing off their coats and tossing dust in the air. I don't know what that's supposed to accomplish, but it's the very sort of thing like children do and also even grown-ups, but when you're irrationally angry, this is the kind of thing you do. One of my nephews used to hit himself when he was mad at you, like when he was a baby, like, you know, senseless behavior. But I, I guess the Tribune, you know, you can't spank the whole crowd, right? Um, so he figures he'll take the easy route and just beat Paul. He's one guy. That's easy. So you're going to examine him by flogging. So it's like, you know, I guess the idea is like, why does everybody hate you? Whack! And, you know, just see what kind of answer you can get out of the guy. <laughs> it's kind of like trial by stone, only with whips. And the Consics know what I'm talking about with that one. Um, but then just before the whip cracks, Paul, being a slick character, pulls his first trump card, Right? Verse 25, when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And you can just see the centurion like, oh, crap. <laughs> is this guy for real? That's a heck of a revelation to drop on us now. 
Paul could have said this much earlier in the process, but he waits, right? Until he's stretched on the rack, the whip is raised, and then he drops this little bomb on them. Paul is smooth. He has a knack for drama. He knows that by timing it this way, it's going to create a stir. And so the centurion in charge of the beating suddenly freezes, right? Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do for this man as a Roman citizen? Now, you will notice in the midst of this that the tribune had left the scene, okay? He's back in the office uncorking a flask from the bottom drawer. And you can't blame him, really. It's been quite a day. He's fed up at this point. He thinks they're all crazy in this town. That's the impression you get. And like all of his predecessors, he's beginning to realize that being the top cop in Jerusalem is pretty much fool's gold. It's a thankless job. It's like the same reason Granite's left Allentown, probably, right? Every Roman governor and military commander pretty much regrets being stationed here. That's the testimony of every historian, and the Bible makes it pretty obvious why. So this tribune, instead, he's like, he had Paul dragged away to be beaten. He gave this order, you know, go beat some sense out of him. And then he went to his office to file papers, maybe hit the bottle and take a nap. And then suddenly, 10 minutes later, the lieutenant comes running and, chief, we got a problem. This guy's a Roman citizen. I personally like how he words it. What are you about to do? Nice how he distanced himself from the situation, you know. But the centurion realizes that this is bad news. Because Roman citizenship is no joke. They didn't hand it out like candy back then. Roman citizenship was a rarity in those days, especially out in the provinces. Roman citizens had real rights and privileges, and so now the whole situation has become sketchy. If Paul really is a citizen and this crowd was attacking him without cause, you should have swooped in to defend him. And now you're about to flog him. This could get an officer in serious trouble. Somewhere, there is a Roman Johnny Cochran who is like looking to have a field day with this situation. Like, you don't want that. And the centurion knows he's going to be on the hook for it, and so he goes and shoves it off on the tribune as quickly as he can. He doesn't even respond to Paul's comment. He just goes straight to the chief. So the tribune puts the bottle away, puts his helmet back on, and runs down to the dungeon to clear this whole thing up says, the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. Now the tribune makes an interesting admission here, maybe even a boast about his own citizenship. It could be that he's even trying to say this to, to express doubt about Paul's claim, right? You're a citizen? Where'd you find the dough? It don't come cheap, and frankly, you look poor. You have to remember, Paul had promised he was going to go and uh, get his hair cut. That didn't happen, so he, he might look like a hippie again at this point. I don't know. So maybe this guy looks at him and just says, I just don't believe it, you know. But then he kind of makes this surprising admission. He says, I paid big bucks for my citizenship. And in other words, he's worked hard for this position. Now, there were some military units in the Roman Empire that were open to non-citizens. You would have whole, whole cohorts like that that were, that were designed to be for non-citizen volunteers. Uh, but a tribune had to be a citizen. Many Roman nobles would become tribunes purely to use it as a stepping stone to getting to the Senate. 
So in other words, this guy had high aspirations and he had worked hard. He spent his life savings for this opportunity and here he is, stuck in Jerusalem dealing with nonsense like this and it could all be put at risk because of Paul. Citizenship isn't all it's cracked up to be for him. This guy basically wants to know how this guy, Paul, managed to be his equal to get something that he had to scrape and save for over the course of years, probably. It's like working every night for, you know, to get yourself through community college and finding out that this prisoner here went to Harvard on a full scholarship. He doesn't get how this can possibly be. And then Paul drops this money line, I was born a citizen. In other words, Paul is basically saying, I'm more Roman than you are. And at that point, every soldier in the room just walks out. It says, so those who were about to examine him, examine, withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. It's bad enough that you bound him, not you know, that you were almost going to whip him. So Paul... Smooth as butter, as he is, he, he pulled out his first trump card. Really, it should be a get-out-of-jail-free card because they had no real cause to lock him up. We already saw this once back in chapter 16, right? When Paul and Silas got arrested in Philippi, that time they got released. And not only did they get released, they received a formal apology from the mayor. This time, it's a little bit trickier. And that's because this is Jerusalem. And honestly, at this point in history, Jerusalem is like the Wild West. It is a cauldron, a boiling pot of nonsense. We're on the cusp of the war there. And releasing Paul is almost certainly going to create a riot. So put yourself in the shoes of this tribune. You can't beat him. You can't release him. But you can't hold him forever. Like, this is a problem. It's a problem without a solution right now. So Paul's citizenship, that's not good news for the tribune. It makes for a huge headache. And rather than freeing him, he's in a situation where he has to somehow justify the fact that we arrested him. So what does he do? He decides he's going to throw him back to the wolves. Verse 30, it says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, that's nice of him, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, so Paul's Roman ID card doesn't get him much, right? He avoids a beating, but that's about it. He doesn't get released. His government doesn't really want him. They don't want to be identified with him. So instead, he gets a private hearing before the Sanhedrin, his religious authority. That's the Tribune's bright idea. And you end up with this weird scene where you're going to have a, 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 a Jewish council meeting here, but all the muscle in the room is going to be Roman soldiers standing along the walls. It's kind of a weird arrangement, but it reflects the weird politics in Jerusalem at this time in history. And the Tribune is desperately hoping that this will somehow result in clarifying things and it will make his life easier and justify his decision. So how does it go? And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul has some chutzpah here. Uh, but there's another way of looking at this. I, I think he's extending an olive branch, and I think he means it sincerely. And it's just little hints you get in the text there, because he calls these guys brothers, in spite of the fact that they're not believers and that many of them want him dead. He still calls them brothers. And it says that he looked at them intently, meaning he's not avoiding eye contact. He's focusing on these men, and he's showing deference and respect. 
And he tells them with full confidence that he's been a good Jew. He has lived uprightly as a Jew all his days. Paul is pulling out his Jew card now, letting them know, I'm one of you. And he can call them brothers, not only because of his Jewish blood, it's not that distant, because he spent half of his life in Jerusalem, and he used to be like a junior member on this very council. Some of the old heads in the room probably served with him when they were all still interns back in the day, you know? Not all of these men are strangers to Paul. He's an alumnus of this group. So Paul's assuring these guys that he's at least as Jewish as anyone in this room. And it's true. But how does it work out? The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. By the way, for those of you who are keeping score, this is the third Ananias we've come across in the book of Acts. Just like, it's frustrating, I know. It's long been debated whether Paul is actually unaware that Ananias is the high priest. It seems like that should have been obvious in this scene, but we'll never know for sure. Either Paul really didn't know who the current high priest was, or he knew, and he's being super passive-aggressive about this right here. Basically saying, well, if you are the high priest, well, act like it then. My guess is that the council also can't tell if Paul's being snarky or not, and that's only what makes them angrier in the situation. Either way, as far as the council's concerned, Paul just undid whatever he just claimed in verse 1. If you're really a conscientious Jew, you don't call the high priest names during the meeting. You just don't do it. Doesn't matter whether you did it knowingly or not, or not. You were disrespectful and you used hurtful words. Even if you were right, you were wrong in how you said it. Now it's amazing how that kind of resonates with today. We live in a time when unkind words, spoken maliciously or not, are considered a form of violence. We've heard a new phrase that's popped up in the last year, it seems, uh, that silence is violence in some instances, right? Meanwhile, actual violence is sometimes excused as free speech. But I I recently saw a a debate that went on 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 Facebook uh, because a pastor who I'm quite fond of, they shared a quote of his where he said that, you know, some young folks in the church have empty heads was, was something along those lines. And there were people that rushed to attack the person that shared this post on Facebook because Jesus would never say that kind of thing at anybody. It's like, no, he said much worse about his own disciples on several occasions, you know. Why that's like the upsetting thing, I don't know. And likewise, here we have Paul who just got smacked physically and unlawfully right here in the court. Smacked on the mouth, but the real offense is that he called this guy a whitewashed wall. That was hurtful. It's a pretty mild insult, all things considered, I think. Paul is implying that this guy's holiness is just a facade, but it seems like the reaction is a little unbalanced, right? But the point is, is that fair or not, no matter how you debate this thing, Paul's ethnic and religious membership card doesn't do him any good either. He's formerly formally disowned by the leaders. He's now been disrespected in public. The leadership has made clear that Paul is no longer welcome here. 
even though he apologizes and quotes the law. He knows chapter and verse, where in Deuteronomy to find that this shouldn't have, you know, I shouldn't have done this or whatever, but the damage is already done. It doesn't matter how much you can quote of the law. All right, so the Romans don't want him, and the Jews don't want him. Paul's running out of friends to turn to in these circumstances, isn't he? Running out of cards to play. But he has one last ace up his sleeve, he thinks of. Paul's a cagey politician, right? And here he goes full divide and conquer, just like my kids in verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. (laughs) He's brilliant. And I don't think Paul's being tongue-in-cheek with this comment. He really is a Pharisee, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, We're used to equating Pharisee with legalist, and many of them were. Jesus was very critical of the Pharisees. But they were also much better theologians than the Sadducees because they actually believed the Bible. They believed in angels. They believed in spirits. They believed the prophets, right? So they also affirmed the idea of the resurrection, which is so central to the gospel, So not all Pharisees believed in Jesus, but there were a few Christians among that camp. Whereas the Christian faith was utterly incompatible with the Sadducees. So the the twist of this is is that the Sadducees have all the political power. Ananias is a Sadducee, right? So Paul exploits the division, making a new partisan political appeal. He pulls out his Pharisee card. He's a member in good standing of the Pharisee party, just like my parents and grandparents before me. I believe everything they believe, and I openly declare my allegiance to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees really were like a religious and political party. If you think American evangelicals are too political, that problem is at least 2,000 years old, right? Everything in Jerusalem is religious, and everything is political. Dinner parties must have been hellish in that environment. I can't even imagine Polite conversation was hard to come by. But Paul, a clever politician, throws his hat in with the Pharisees. If he can't win over all the Jews, he thinks, maybe I can at least win over my party. And he almost succeeds. Says, and when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So again, we have a partial victory for Paul. Uh, But he gets lost in the shuffle, doesn't he? The Pharisees kind of come to his defense, at least in a sense, but they are less interested in Paul's well-being, let alone his message, than they are in using him as a political weapon. Paul's in the middle of a proxy war. It's not really about him or his message. Now, you know that in American politics, I don't know if you've noticed this, that people will defend almost anything their side says, right? No? Is it just me? I don't know. But... Politically, I've also noticed that we're very quick to discard someone once they outlive their usefulness. Nobody cares about washed-up politicians, right? Nobody still has Dukakis stickers on their you know, bumper. It's like it, it doesn't exist, right? Um, every now and then, though, you have a situation, and, and you see this on the news a lot, right? Some low-level staffer in the White House will switch sides politically, 
And they'll go on Fox or on CNN, depending on which side they just switched from, right? And they become an overnight sensation, trashing the current administration, right? And they get their 15 minutes of fame, and the lucky ones might even get a book deal. And they're all over the news for about a week. And then they get kicked to the curb as soon as the news cycle changes. And that's what's going to happen to Paul even faster than that. The Pharisees are interested in Paul as a political wedge issue. He is a cudgel to beat the Sadducees with. But they don't care about the content of his message, the gospel. And that's why instead of actually listening to Paul, they immediately start attacking their political enemies across the aisle. He's just a tool for them. He's a useful idiot. So at the end of the day, Paul is a political football. Only it's a little more like dodgeball because everyone's avoiding him. He's claimed membership in several groups, and he's very cleverly played people against each other, and he's been oh so smooth about the whole thing. I watch him, and it's like, I wish I was this smooth. You know, I, I, I read recently a, 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 some comment about how, like, you know, why is it that women, when they buy, like, perfumes and stuff, they get to smell like natural things, and men, we have to smell like concepts, and so, like, you have, like, you know, goofy titles, and I thought about that, and I, I Georgia recently bought me Old Spice deodorant and and the the flavor of the day as it were is called swagger and it's like yeah like we want to throw that on i want to have that swagger i want that concept you know but i don't know how to attain it i wish i were as cool as paul and paul has pulled out every membership card out of his wallet and yet at the end of the day he has no tribe nobody that really wants him not the romans not the jews not even really the pharisees paul is nationally ethnically, religiously, and politically homeless. Even though he should belong to all of these groups by birthright. He doesn't get the chance to present the gospel fully in this passage at all, and while Paul has tried his very best, he's been very clever, very savvy, gospel-focused, he ends the day in prison, alienated from his friends and wondering what's going to happen to him next. Now what do you do when you've played your best hand and you're still lost? What happens when being smooth isn't enough? I read this story several times throughout the week, and I felt like the theme I kept coming back to, what I kept thinking every time I read it was just, wow, Paul is so cool. He's so smooth. He knows what to say. He knows when to say it. He shows no fear. He stops the centurion in his tracks. He gives the high priest a piece of his mind, you know. He confuses the whole Sanhedrin and throws it into an uproar. And I read this scene, and I I thought of my kids manipulating us this week, and I thought, boy, that was clever too. Like, you know, and it reminded me of the scene in North by Northwest where Cary Grant, he's at that auction scene, and there's some mobsters out to kill him, and so he makes a scene and a disturbance just so that he'll get arrested to save his own life, to avoid the mobsters who are waiting to kill him. And it's a brilliant move. Georgia said it reminded her of, of Gandalf confusing the, the trolls, the three trolls that are going to eat all of the hobbits, you know, all the hobbits, and, and you know, he, he, he confuses them just long enough to save everyone from being eaten. And yeah, you know, and, and Cary Grant is really the definition of cool, at least he was back in the 50s, right? And Gandalf is really cool. And my kids are actually pretty cool. And I found myself just envying Paul, and I thought to myself, why can't I think of clever things to say in the moment? I can't even do that up here. I sit here, I have to agonize over every word and put everything down so that I know what I'm talking about. I wish I was as smooth as Paul. 
And then that made me struggle with the message because I couldn't think, what is the main point then? Is this passage about getting out of trouble? Is it about the importance of belonging to the right clubs and organizations? Is it about knowing what to say in a given moment? Knowing how to manipulate people, how to avoid beatings? Or is it just about how much cooler Paul is than all of us? And I literally sat in my office agonizing. I despaired over this dilemma. It's a cool story, yes, but what does it mean? And I needed Georgia, as usual, to point out. Maybe Paul didn't feel that cool. He was brilliant, yes, and he was in all the right clubs. And then he he stands up, I'm a Roman, I'm a Jew, I'm a Pharisee. No, you're a jailbird, who cares? And for an evangelist who has dreams of reaching Rome, things look kind of bleak at the end of this passage. So where's Paul's comfort in this? When he's separated from his friends and rejected by every group in Jerusalem and they throw him back in his cell for the night, what do you think he thought about his day? Did he feel as cool as he looks? Or did he wonder if he made a fool of himself? Did he feel like he blew it? And we get a hint of the answer by what happens that night. It says, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That's a remarkable little verse. It kind of comes and goes, and you, and you barely even notice it. But I bet this scene played itself out in Paul's mind every day from here on out to the rest of his life. Because I think this is the first time that Jesus has made a direct appearance in a long time in our book. He ascended like 20 years ago at this point, and he sent the Holy Spirit, and we've seen a lot of that activity, and the Spirit's been very active, right? But as far as I can recall, I don't know that anybody has seen Jesus personally since then. Paul hasn't seen him since the Damascus Road when he was blinded by the sight. And I'm not even sure that he saw him at that, on that occasion, whether he actually saw Jesus directly, he heard him. But even here, I don't know how Paul knew that it was the Lord, but Luke says he was there. Here, in prison. Locked out of the city, locked out of the temple, alienated from his friends, rejected by his people, by his country, by his party, and by his government. That's where Jesus shows up. He stands by the bed and he tells Paul, hang in there. You did real good today. I'll get you to Rome yet. And Jesus doesn't waste words. If he tells Paul to take courage, I think it's because Paul needed to hear that. I think Paul ended this day very discouraged. All he had wanted for a long time now was to go to Rome. And it's said that he had resolved in the Spirit to do so several chapters back, and yet the Holy Spirit's been telling him, go to Jerusalem instead, and uh, suffering's waiting for you there. And Paul obeyed. He went to Jerusalem, but he wanted to at least use this last opportunity to evangelize his people. And then that flops. And he ends the day in a cold cell. And I bet he wondered, is God done with me? Maybe my earlier sins against the church are finally catching up to me. I bet he feels exhausted and silly and powerless, dejected, discouraged, and weak. Because Paul has used up everything in his arsenal, and now he's empty. 
But once he comes to the end of himself, yet again, when Paul is alone with his doubts and fears, that's when Jesus shows up. And what I think that shows is that even the coolest characters, the smoothest operators, have their doubts, even in the church. Jesus himself got in trouble with all the same people. He got in trouble with the Romans and with the Pharisees and with the Sanhedrin. He even got smacked on the mouth in exactly the same way Paul did back in John chapter 18. Jesus can sympathize. And not only that, he can sympathize because no one was cooler than him. He was the smoothest operator who ever lived. Jesus always knew what to say. But even he had his moments of intense loneliness and weakness. This is the Jesus of Gethsemane, the Jesus of Calvary. And the Jesus of Gethsemane and Calvary, exactly, he's exactly who you want to come and encourage you in the night when you're laying in bed, replaying the events of the day, and feeling like a fool and wondering if God can still use you after what happened. Paul's laying there thinking of all the work he was going to have to leave undone the ministry goals that would have to be left for others, and Jesus shows up, and this is for the first time here in a prison cell that he explicitly confirms Paul's mission. I am going to get you to Rome. Cheer up, Paul. You still have work to do. Just hang in there. And this is why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 3 that he counted everything as a loss for the sake of Christ, his Roman citizenship, his Jewish zeal, his party affiliations, all of it. Everything is garbage as long as I have Jesus. Now, most of us aren't as cool as Paul, and most of us don't have his quick wit. We stumble over our words. Most of us don't belong to the right clubs. And like all Christians in history, we don't really fit in with the groups that we claim to belong to. We're strangers in this world, and we're trying to fit in, and we're not doing it very well. But when you've tried your best and you've failed... We spend a lot of time discouraged and not feeling particularly smooth about things. The gospel hope is that you don't have to fit in. Paul didn't. Jesus didn't. And at your most discouraged, it's good to know that the same Lord who lived and died and was raised for you is in your corner. When you don't fit in anywhere else, Jesus is close to you because he knows how it feels, he's not disappointed, and he still has a plan. The smoothest operator who ever lived is still working in you, and he's not finished. I needed to hear that this week. I think Paul needed to hear it. Maybe you do too. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your word. We thank you for this this story of Paul, Lord, that we are following. And we'll continue to follow, Lord. Lord, he's such a cool character. He really is, and and a lot of us aspire to him. There's a reason why it's such a commonly used name. Lord, we we love to aspire to Paul-like confidence in the gospel. But Lord, he was a weak man too. You kept him there in weakness, Lord, so that he would lean on you. We thank you for sustaining him, Lord. We thank you that you do the same thing for us now. Lord, I know that it is your will for us to trust not in our own selves, Lord, not in our memberships, not in our own cleverness, Lord. What do we have to offer? Lord, we come in empty, and the emptier we are, Lord, the more you fill us. 
Lord, help us to know that. Lord, give us courage this week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.